Well, welcome to the 13th episode of Primary Care Update. Hope that's not bad luck. Uh, I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family doc, a professor at the University of Georgia, currently in Dublin at the Royal College of Surgeons, where I'm doing a Fulbright. So we are time zoned apart from my colleagues, Dr. John Hickner from, uh, JF, from the Journal of Family Practice and Dr. Henry Berry from Michigan State University. Um, if you like what you hear, check out Essential Evidence Plus, an evidence-based online primary care reference at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. So Primary Care Update is our summary of recent research that we think is relevant to primary care medicine. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or endorsement of any product, although we may criticize the, the occasional product, as you may guess. Uh, as usual, and as I said before, I'm joined by my good friends, Dr. John Hickner. John, staying warm up in the, in the UP? Oh, yes, yes. We're taking off for Palm Springs tomorrow to watch some tennis, so we'll nice. be in good shape. <laughs> I heard there's something called a polar, it wasn't a polar vortex, it was some sort of a cyclone or something like that that they came across northern Michigan. Uh, we've had lots of those this year. It's just amazing. Coldest and snowiest winter on record in a, several decades. Excellent. You picked a great time to retire to northern Michigan. They knew you were coming. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. So, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit, what are the goals of your Fulbright? Well, we're going to be working on um, some uh, teaching modules around cancer screening. So I'm working on that. And we're also working on uh, an approach to doing meta-analysis when you have a clinical prediction rule or any test, really, that has three or more possible outcomes. So if you have low, moderate, and high-risk groups, and you have 15 studies reporting likelihood ratios, how do you combine those likelihood ratios? So it's kind of a nerdy, wonky side of it. But doing a lot of uh, teaching over here in the, at the Royal College of Surgeons, just uh, enjoyed the sort of local Irish uh, national research meeting for primary care, had some great speakers. So um, it's a lot of fun. We're, we're thinking of new things to do every day. Thanks for asking, though. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, first poem today, I think, is mine. Well, let's get right into it. This is uh, Basu was the first author. It's called Association of Primary Care Physicians Supply with Population Mortality in the United States, 2005 to 2015. It was in JAMA Internal Medicine, published online February 18th. So this study is from the AAFP-funded Graham Center. They do really good work uh, under the leadership of Bob Phillips, who's a family physician and author of the report. Uh, their white papers are often used to inform our members of Congress, which is an uphill battle, I think, but they we're trying to inform them of the value of primary care. So the goal of this project was to look at primary care physician supply changes, and primarily they were talking about general internists and family physicians across U.S. counties from 2005 to 2015. And what they wanted to see was, were there associations between those changes and population mortality? Basically, does having more primary care docs improve health outcomes at the population level. So this is um, not an ecologic study, though it's an observational study, and they did link individual level claims data regarding mortality from during those 10 years to changes in the physician supply in that area for primary care and specialist physicians. They had over 3,000 U.S. counties, 7,100 primary care service areas, and over 300 hospital referral regions, and they did their best to adjust for health, uh, medical, demographic, socioeconomic, and behavioral um, covariates. Obviously, there are differences between rural and urban areas and things like that. So here's what they found. The overall primary care physician supply actually increased 
from about 196,000 to 2004, I'm sorry, 196,000 to 204,000 in 2015. Uh, The overall number increased, but because of shifts from rural to suburban and urban areas, the mean density of primary care physicians decreased somewhat from about 47 to 41 per 100,000 population. These losses were greater in rural areas. It's getting harder uh, for rural areas to find family physicians and, and general internists to, uh, to live out there and deliver care. Uh, they found that this has consequences. For every 10 additional primary care physicians per 100,000 population, there was a 51-day increase in life expectancy. On the other hand, you do the same thing, put 10 more subspecialists in per 100,000, there was only a 19-day increase compared with 51 with the primary care. At least lifespan didn't go down by adding lots of subspecialists. I mean, that's, I guess, uh, looking on the bright side. Um, So an increase in 10 primary care docs per 100,000 was associated with reduced cardiovascular cancer, respiratory mortality by around 1%. And they sliced and diced and analyzed the data lots of different ways, but they found pretty consistent conclusions. More primary care physicians are associated with lower mortality, but over time, that per capita supply is decreasing. Henry, I heard you snickering in the background. What, what are your <laughs> comments on this? Yeah, so, you know, this is the kind of study that, uh, you know, as ob- observational studies are subject to many potential sources of bias. If we were to apply the Roland Hill criteria for how strong is this in terms of primary care actually improving health outcomes and the like, you know, consistency across studies um, is certainly one piece. It's robust. It's an old story story that's been retold many times by people like Barbara Starfield and others. But as you know, I am a skeptic. And so I actually did a little snooping to see, are there any randomized trials of primary care versus um, 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 unfettered access to specialists and the like? And the closest I could come was a paper published in 1986 in Lancet uh, by John Ware and company. And the, this was a randomized trial where people were assigned to HMOs versus fee-for-service. So, so the HMO being kind of a proxy for managed care. And the outcomes in that were kind of mixed, generally positive, but in a low-income very sick group of patients at baseline, that's a group that tended to do better in the fee-for-service system than in the HMO system. And obviously, the HMO system at that time uh, was a very different beast than perhaps what it is now. So, so I think that this is a story that could be reinforced. And I would encourage my uh, our, our listeners that you know, it, this is a public policy issue. And so what you need to do is if you believe that primary care is important to improving the health of a population of the country, that you need to um, get down and testify in front of your local legislators, your national representatives, and make sure that you vote accordingly. John, are there any primary care physicians up where you are in Escanaba? Oh, yes. We have quite a few of them. And I will be the enthusiast while Henry is the skeptic. Uh, as Henry mentioned, this is one of a series of many studies about workforce and primary care workforce. This work was started by and large by, as Henry mentioned, Barbara Starfield, 
And her first study about this issue appeared in JAMA in 1992, so not long after the WARE study. And since that time, she and her group have done many comparisons that have been nationwide comparisons of the strength of primary care and health outcomes. There have been small variation studies in the United States about outcomes related to primary care, especially in the state of Florida. There have been comparisons across states rating the strength of the primary care system and health outcomes. And in absolutely every case, health outcomes are better when primary care is stronger. So I think the data is really overwhelming, Henry, that even though we can't do randomized trial, Henry, did we do any randomized trials of smoking and lung cancer? I will remind you. So I think the data is quite strong uh, and our country is very slowly waking up to the problem of insufficient primary care workforce. And uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think the Obama administration was moving forward well. I, I don't know that the Trump administration has been for or against primary care. I don't think they've done anything to harm primary care, except maybe through cutting back in insurance. But uh, I, think, I think our nation is beginning to realize that we need a stronger primary care system. So just to be clear, though, the Obama administration, the Affordable Care Act, was about access to insurance and did absolutely nothing, as has the previous 20 administrations have done absolutely nothing to address the workforce. Uh, that's, yeah. not quite, that's not quite true. I think through the, the uh, Title VII grants, I think there was better support with the Obama administration. There was expansion of rural residency programs and family medicine. So I think they did something. And, and right now is a hot time in Congress uh, for primary care. And there are a number of bills that are being considered right now to continue to strengthen primary care in this country. Well, I, I would say that you know it's a big ship to turn around in terms of workforce and, and the pipeline of getting students interested and, and medical students geared up to go into primary care and changing reimbursement and loan programs and, and all those things have to happen. And we're already, I think, um, losing ground, at least in terms of per capita uh, and staying pretty flat in terms of the total number. And, and the other thing, the last thing I'll add before we move on is that um, Barbara Starfield also looked at international comparisons and, again, found the same story that if you look at countries that have stronger primary care systems, they tend to have better health outcomes and lower costs. And so, you know, that's just one more piece in the puzzle. But thanks for your thoughts, guys. Um, somehow I'm not surprised that Henry was the skeptic and John was the, the shiny-eyed optimist, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's things <right>. never change. <laughs> Hey, um, let's move on. I think it's Henry's turn to tell us about his quiz. Yeah, so this quiz is inspired by us being in the heart of cold and flu season. Which of the following statements about colds in children are true? A, very few children get colds in a single season. B, they last until the kid goes away to college or moves out of the house. C, they last on average nine days but can go as long as three weeks. D, most parents drag their kids to the office or to an urgent care. E, most children miss school when ill. Stay tuned. Okay. John, it's your turn to tell us about Rifaximin and uh, probiotics. I'm distracted by Henry's question. I really don't know which is the right answer. So I, I will <laughs> wait for that answer at the end, Henry. But in Baited the meantime, uh, something quite mundane this is an interesting uh, but small systematic review and meta-analysis uh, 
of the efficacy of prebiotics, probiotics, and symbiotics, and a specific antibiotic for treatment of irritable bowel syndrome, published in Elementary Pharmacologic Therapy in 2010. I'm sorry, 2018. Uh, so, the, so as I say, this was a meta-analysis, and the authors went through uh, three good databases searching for everything they could find. And actually, they didn't find a whole lot on treatment of IBS with these modalities, prebiotics, of course, being uh, a, a, pre, a probiotic precursor. And the antibiotic they studied were, was rifaximin. Sorry, that's a hard one to say, rifaximin. Uh, they didn't find a lot, but they did find some studies of prebiotics, which are fructooligosaccharides, and they didn't show any benefit. But they were small and at high risk of bias, so I think uh, prebiotics, it's unknown. Probiotics, on the other hand, there were several decent studies of a variety of probiotics, uh, mostly bifidobacterium and various lactobacilli that did show some effectiveness in relieving symptoms of IBS. And finally, the antibiotic rifaximin uh, was somewhat effective in five studies of about 2,000 patients and did show some benefit for diarrhea and irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. The problem with that antibiotic is that it's quite expensive. Nine tablets, even with a discount, can run up to $200. So I don't think it's really a practical way of treating irritable bowel syndrome because it's so expensive, but pro probiotics can be helpful. Uh, what they're not helpful for is uh, so much for constipation. They do seem to help on the diarrhea side, but in separate meta-analyses that I just reviewed recently, they were not very effective for constipation. So this is mostly for the uh, crampy pain and diarrhea associated with IBS. I guess when I think about these, one of the challenges is knowing exactly what to recommend. It's it's hard to find. There are guides out there. If you Google, you know, probiotic prescribing guidance and things like that, you can find some what look like pretty legitimate from the British Medical Journal and other publications, you know, sort of general guidelines. But knowing what's in the probiotics uh, preparation, you can't just say get a probiotic. I think that's one of the points, the takeaways that I took was you, you have fairly specific strains and combinations and doses even that might be important. Very true. Okay, Henry, um, it is time to hear about, uh, did you want to say anything about probiotics? I, I know you probably are a big fan. Um, so I, as you've pointed out, one, these are limited data. Two, there is no single one type of probiotic that's out there. Um, the, the gut microflora is an emerging area of research uh, for many other health issues, not just the uh, for the gut. So um, I, this is an emerging area for which I think we need to stay tuned. Um, in an upcoming issue of our podcast, we are probably going to review um, a systematic review that was just done in January in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, a systematic review of antidepressants and um, counseling for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so your gut feeling is that they, they, we need more information. I yeah, say. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Henry, time for you to talk about, uh, I think this is a diabetes uh, poem. Yeah, so this paper asks the question, do sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, the SGL2 
T2 inhibitors decrease major adverse cardiovascular events in patients with type 2 diabetes. This was published in Lancet uh, earlier this year. Zellnicker was the lead author. Uh, I will start off by saying that papers like the way they did this annoy me. And we'll talk about that when I do my rant. So, uh, so they did a systematic review and included three trials and six secondary analyses from those three trials. The trials included over 34,000 patients with type 2 diabetes. About 60% had known atherosclerotic disease at the time of enrollment. There was marked variability in many aspects of the studies, including how they defined atherosclerosis risk factors. One, didn't they actually even attempt to provide a definition? And while both the other studies included things like smoking and hypertension and dyslipidemia, uh, those varied in age threshold and only one actually included the duration of diabetes. So you shouldn't be surprised then that the proportion of patients in these three studies that had risk factors varied from 0% a third and roughly half. And these studies included, uh, and I'm going to butcher the names, I'm sorry, empagliflozone, canagliflozone, and dapagliflozone. Come on. So, um, these are the medications that go by the trade name Invocana, Farsiga, and Jardians. Okay. So over the course of the stu- by the way, each of these were industry sponsored. And as a result, the, the conduct of the studies was really done at high quality with blinding and masking and clear randomization. And so if you were to apply a quality score, those came out uh, fairly high. So about 10% of the patients in these studies experienced a major adverse cardiovascular event or a MACE, three quarters of which were in patients who already had known atherosclerosis. It turns out that those that took the SGL2 had a slightly fewer bases than those taking a placebo, um, roughly a number needed a treat of 167 per year. Now, They also had these composite events, and the SGLT2 inhibitors were associated with fewer of those, but the composite event was hospitalization for heart failure plus cardiovascular death or decreased glomerular filtration rate, end-stage renal disease, or renal death. Now, how's that for a fruit salad composite outcome? So the only harms that they actually reported in the study were the increase in amputations in the patients taking canagliflozin with a number needed to harm of about 3,000 per year. And all three, there was a higher rate of ketoacidosis of about 2,500. All right, so now it's time for me to rant. So red flags go up anytime a study only includes published data and makes no attempt to find unpublished studies. So for example, I went to clinicaltrials.gov, and just for one of the agents, I found 30 completed clinical trials. Now, it's possible that some of those, and I didn't do a deep dive, but it's possible that some of those were dealing with different populations, but I have, I, I, my hackles go up when I start to see selective publication. 
So even though the study itself didn't get any funding, there's a rather impressive list of, quote, interests, end quote, among the authors. So it's quite possible that this class of drugs is truly effective in clinical, um, in improving clinical outcomes, but I would love to see an independent, conflict-free, patient-level meta-analysis that includes all of the relevant studies. And it shouldn't be surprising that our, in our last episode, when we talked about the new ADA guidelines, that you know John mentioned that this class of drugs has moved up to second-line treatment. My suspicion is that this is one of those areas that could over time possibly be reversed. Yeah, I don't think there's ever been a study that enrolled that found a, a cardiovascular outcome benefit in average risk type 2 diabetics. If you look at these studies, almost all of the patients, in some cases all the patients, have established cardiovascular disease. That's a very different risk group. And they also tend to make short shrift of some of the harms like genital, genital infections, which are much more common with this class of drugs, um, I believe. And um, yeah, so the, the concern is that this is going to be sort of indication creep where they say, oh, look, they, make, they have a small but maybe real benefit in patients with known cardiovascular disease, but then why don't you just give it to everybody because surely it'll be just as good for, you know, the patients without heart disease yet. And so there's that indication creep that I think we have to be, you know, watchful for. My concerns are the same as yours, Mark. I think the the best data comes from the empagliflozin study, uh, which did show a decrease uh, in, in death. And so I think that was a a very well-run RCT. But again, the problem is those patients were all quite high risk for cardiovascular outcomes. So indication creep is going to be a problem. Yeah, I just covered that study and another one on liraglutide that came out in the same journal of the New England Journal of Drug Company Funded Studies. I mean, New England Journal mm-hmm. of Medicine. I keep forgetting, misnaming that. Um, but I, I did a workshop here for Irish uh, GP, academic GPs on information mastery and poems and kind of taught them how to do the poems approach. And I used those two studies because they were good examples of spinning the results. You know, in the results, if you look at the out, the discussion and the outcomes, they'll say, they just say, in type 2 diabetics, our drug reduces cardiovascular mortality or without, or, or they might say, in type 2 diabetics at risk for heart disease. Well, no, they already had heart disease and not just at risk for it, but it just is a good example of the spin that's often put onto these studies when the authors and the researchers who are, you know, paid by pharma are, are doing the writing. So I think it's always important, whether it's poems or ACP Journal Club, to have a source that's independent evaluating this research or to do it yourself if you have the time and inclination. So thanks, guys. Uh, We're just going to finish up here with the quiz answer from Henry. Henry. All right. So which of the following statements about colds in children are true? Very few children get colds in a single season. They last until the kid goes away to college or moves out of the house. They last on average nine days, but can last as long as three weeks. Most parents drag their kids to the office or in urgent care. Most children miss school when ill. Well, I took my answer from this uh, in a from a paper published in the January issue of the Annals of Family Medicine. There was a cohort study of 500 healthy children who were recruited from primary care practices in England. And the researchers contacted the parents every week to find out, hey, did your kid have a cold or not? And if they did, then the parents had completed a daily symptom diary. 
Now, the study went from February to July, so it missed some of the, the, the typical cold season. But in spite of this, more than half the children had at least one cold, and there was an average of just a little over of one cold per each child. On average, they lasted nine days, but this was a skewed distribution with a long tail. So 90% resolved by about 23 days. Now, this could potentially reflect local custom and the like, but less than 10% actually sought formal medical care and less than 10% actually missed school. And again, this could be a reflection of local school policies and school expectations. In our school system here, if you get a kid who has rubbed it's his eye or her eye, and it's a little bit red, the school sends the kid home to make sure that they don't have pink eye and spread it to everybody else. So, so there are uh, local policy issues around school um, attendance. Yeah, this is interesting. And it's, it, I think it's important. It just reinforces the fact that we need to give our um, uh, patients and parents of, of the children we see a good prognosis. And, and I think too often patients expect that a cold or a especially a chest cold or, or what we call acute bronchitis is going to only last a week or last a few days. And we know that those kind of infections can last much longer. Two to three weeks is typical for a chest cold. And so a good prognosis can be helpful and help setting the right expectations, hopefully, is part of the battle of trying to avoid inappropriate antibiotics. Anyway, it's been fun talking to you guys. John, stay warm. Henry. Um, Will do. Yeah, <laughs> and Henry, good talking to you as well. Um, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right, take care. Bye now.